My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'd be able to make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job, not just to entertain you, but to educate, teach. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. The rap against this market's ironclad. We're headed for a Fed-mandated slowdown that will cause the earnings estimates to tumble. And because the earnings estimates are the number one driver of stocks performance, that means the averages have to plummet no matter what. So then why are stocks rallying furiously? Dow getting another 254 points. Say S&P advancing 1.19%. NASDAQ pole voting 2.01%. Holy cow, those are big and for many unexpected gains. House of pleasure. In truth, there are a whole bunch of reasons. Let's start with the macro, the overarching determinant for tons of institutional investors. Often because they run too much money to care about individual stocks, they just trade the S&P 500, the index, you know, they go back and forth and back and forth. Because only the baskets are large enough to handle all their capital. While it's true that there are, there, there, there's an only slowdown. I'm not getting away from that in some areas. If you can get a sense of when the Federal Reserve will stop tightening, you might be able to temper that negativity. Sure enough, right on time. We got an article in the Wall Street Journal this weekend by an authoritative source who says the Fed may do a quarter point rate hike next week, then two more before a pause. Investors are actually hopeful for just one additional hike after next week's meeting. Either way, you know what? There's light at the end of the rate tightening cycle. Hey, if that's the case, if the Fed is being more measured going forward, then people will be far less likely to sell stocks, even if the underlying companies report Disappointing earnings. No, a a slower rate hike schedule doesn't immunize any of your stocks against a slowdown. I don't want you to believe that. It just makes us more optimistic that by the second half, we might see some daylight in the earnings estimates. Some large buyers want to get ahead of the Fed's potential pivot to the end of the tidying cycle. That always happens. Or at least the beginning of the end of the tidying cycle. I've seen it in my 40 years over and over again. People jump the gun. Now, that was a big driver of today's buying and explained some of the bullish backdrop. But let's get to the nitty gritty of what I see happening because beyond the Fed, because there's no Fed meeting until next week. And for now, well, let's just say starting tomorrow, earnings are going to be front and center and be furious. So far, we've seen six ways other other, six ways otherwise dead in the water stocks have been able to jump higher. And I'm going to run through these six ways right now. Let's start with the first one, layoffs. Now, we, we have seen layoffs give a pop to every company that's restructured. Although here we're talking about layoffs that are large enough to move the earnings per share needle. We just the incredible run in Wayfair over the last couple of days. More on that one later. It's so gigantic. In terms of large companies, we've seen Meta Platforms, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Salesforce all jump on the news of mass layoffs. In the case of Salesforce, they fired 10% of their staff, but four activists who own the thing right now, well, they say it's not enough, including the hard-nosed Elliott Management, which owns billions of dollars worth of shares. Of course, the activists aren't just concerned about the headcount. 
there are accountability issues, too, that they see, including a board shakeup and maybe a new succession plan. But it all starts with the fact that Salesforce hired too many people during the pandemic, something, by the way, even CEO Mark Benioff will admit to you. That said, the fact that so many activist funds are circling a big enterprise software company, one of the most hated areas of the market, is something very new and very positive. The guys at Elliott are incredibly smart. Even though they want major changes, the fact that they're willing to buy something like an enterprise software company such as Salesforce at all is quite an endorsement of the company and its amazing suite of products. Plus, if the company gives us the activists, it gives the activists the cost cuts they want, the earnings should get a powerful boost. Wall Street always loves those self-help stories. Hey, look, by the way, it's not just tech. Newell, yeah, the old Newell Rubbermaid, has been down on its luck, but its stock popped 6% today on a restructuring, too, so let's not limit it. Second thing propelling stocks higher, both the dollar and interest rates peaked last fall. Since then, the most economically sensitive stocks, the cyclicals, which you know I like, have been rallying hard. I don't think they'll have horrendous earnings because many of them do do a lot of business overseas. So the numbers will be boosted by that weaker dollar. Many other stocks have rallied since bond yields peaked. Honestly, that might be more important than the short-term rates set by the Fed for these companies. Third potential earnings driver, everybody's worried that relentless rate hikes will cause people to default on their debts, causing real damage to the banks. But if the Fed's nearly done, then those bad loans worries, let's take them off the table. And that's what the market did today, took all these stocks up. Meanwhile, the rate hikes have given banks a windfall because they can take your deposits, make more money by reinvesting them in short-term treasuries risk-free. Although, no free lunch here, your deposit is beginning to get a higher return. Fourth, the reopening of China. Now, this has so many people excited. You think all the geopolitical tensions with China vanished overnight. Hardly. COVID's now burning through the most populous nation in the world, though. We know there are ways to deal with the viruses, but it's like the Chinese government has just given up. They want the economy back, and they want it back now. And it looks like they're getting a wish. Right now, it's the Lunar New Year. And so far, it looks like the strong one, a strong one for consumer spending. Oh, that's good for Macau casinos, travel in general, and U.S. companies that do big business in the PRC, like Nike, like Starbucks, and Estee Lauder, which we own for the charitable trust precisely because of the grand reopening. We own Win too, and talk about those both. We talk about them, all of them, our morning meeting at 10.20 and our new home stretch afternoon broadcast that appears around 2.30 p.m. China's pulling off a gigantic shift. China's used to be so, so important, then COVID hit and pretty much went away. Well, now, now China's back. Fifth, we're beginning to see the fruits of all the infrastructure spending Congress authorized in the past couple of years. Most states are still nowhere near authorizing these projects, but the money's there whether the Fed tightens or not. Consider it a safety net for any company remotely connected to the building of roads, bridges, tunnels, or even large buildings. That means you can buy Nucor, Kramer Fave, Caterpillar, or even the rails as they start to report tomorrow. Sure, they can go down, but they won't be able to stay down. That's what matters, because we know all the spending on the, is on the horizon. Six of perhaps most important for a day where semiconductors went nuts. It looks like analysts are trying to get ahead of the end of this gigantic inventory correction. Remember the glut I keep talking about by recommending stocks like AMD? Did you see that today? Qualcomm? Wow. NVIDIA. And it's working as they all soared. Remember, the inventory glut included everything from cell phones to desktops to high-performance computers. This is a very big deal, people. Very big. The Deutsche Bank analysts who recommended these semiconductor stocks acknowledge that it's a 2024 story. I get that. For example, I can see Micron benefiting from the cutbacks it made last year because they initially helped create the glut, and now they're alleviating. Now, a special thing here. I want you to pay special attention to NVIDIA, N-V-D-A. 
because it, of course, turns out to make the platform for the chat GPT program you keep hearing so much about. Remember when I told you that you might be able to tell an AI to uh, make me a uh, a painting like Cezanne or have a real conversation with it. You could even have it talk to you as yourself. I saw that with my own eyes at NVIDIA's headquarters. A friend of mine, it's, it's just, this thing's just exploding. A friend of mine, a CEO, shared a chat GPT generated haiku about this coming showdown this Sunday between the Eagles and the Niners, but I will not share it because he is, alas, from San Francisco. Well, it's here. That's right. And this whole idea of the semiconductor as a way to be able to create in your head and then present without having to do anything. Well, it's here, no matter who uses it. City says AI, this is why I really wouldn't mention CI says it's a $5 billion opportunity, but an outside chance of $11 billion. You heard me, $11 billion with this chat. This thing could be real. Here's the bottom line. With those six positives countering the expected earnings downturn, you have to expect the market to be a lot more sanguine. At the moment of the first print, when we see the numbers, I still expect to see some vicious declines. The difference from 2022, those declines, they might be... Buyable. Matt in Wisconsin, Matt! Jimmy, what a matchup for the championship next week. It is going to be the real deal, but my, you know, my feeling, you know, I feel about the birds. What's happening? <laughs> well, so uh, one thing you've been talking about recently, especially after the J.B. Hunt call last week, is the normalization of inventory management challenges. And so how do you think that sets up for Levi's as they come out and report this week? Because they've been dealing with a lot of oversupplied inventory like a lot of the apparel industry. Matt, this is a brilliant question, and I thought the same as you did, that it was time. However, Matt Boss at J.P. Morgan downgraded the stock today, and I cannot go against Matt Boss. He is too good. Betsy in California. Betsy. Well, hey, Jim. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How about you, Betsy? Can I tell you something? I learned so much from the monthly meeting, and anybody who doesn't become a member and doesn't listen to that is missing out. And I will tell oh, you what I learned you. from it. I'll tell you what I learned from it, Jim. I did more research on Estee Lauder after the call. And what I found was there were 12,000 flights canceled, okay? If there were 12,000 flights canceled, there were over a million people stuck in the airports. And they didn't have their suitcases, and they didn't have their Clinique and Smashbox and Bumble and Bumble and the Lab Series, and the Bobby Brown Cosmetics. And where did they go? They couldn't go to a mall. They were waiting for the plane to be coming in. So Estee Lauder probably made out like a bandit at the airports. Oh, my, Betsy, that is one brilliant analysis. I have to admit, I hadn't thought of it. Their duty-free is exactly their most important venue other than China. You know, on the home stretch today, right around 2.30, Jeff Marks and I talked about Estee Lauder. I wish I had your horse sense. I would have thrown it in as one more reason why this stock, up 36% in the last few months, has much more to go. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words about the club. With the six positives countering the expected earnings downturn, you have to expect the market to be a lot more sanguine, don't you? And it is on Mad Money tonight. Wayfair caught two back-to-back rallies, up nearly 50% in two days. So what has Wall Street rallying around the stock? 
I'm digging into the recent headlines. Then Bitcoin bounces back. So is it time to take a close look at the crypto cohort, or is this market giving you a better way to hedge against economic uncertainty? I'm going off the charts to find out. And get this, Eli Lilly announced last week that the FDA shot down the company's request to fast-track their Alzheimer's treatment. So what material impact, if at all, could this news have on the stock? I'm going to give you my take. And it's pretty darn disruptive. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. All right, what the heck just happened to the stock of Wayfair? Last Friday, the formerly beaten down online furniture retailer announced some cost-cutting plans, including layoffs, and the stock shot up 20% in a single session. Then today, it caught a few upgrades and rallied another 27%. All told, Wayfair stock is now up more than 50% in just two days' time. It's like a takeout. Now, I've told you many times that these bloated tech and e-commerce companies could all send their stocks higher simply by firing a lot of people. But I never expected a move like this. You'd think Wayfair really got some sort of, I don't know, $70 bid from... Coles. How about that? So what's going on here? All right, part of this move is simply a sector rotation. Many of the stocks that were hated last year are now leading us higher in 2023. That now includes Wafer, which was a textbook COVID winner. They made a fortune in 2020 and 2021 because everybody wanted to get new furniture for lockdown. Yeah, that work at home, too. Nobody wanted to shop in person. Isn't that the perfect scenario for Wafer? But the stock finally peaked at $369 in early 2021 and steadily began working its way lower. I warned you away from Wayfair a little over a year ago when it had already come down to 190 and that turned out to be a good call. The stock ultimately plunged as low as $28 this past October, down 94% from its all-time high, although it's now doubled off those lows, but 94% is not something that you can handle. A big chunk of that move came before last week's layoff announcement, but most of it came in the past two sessions. And look, there's a reason the stock caught fire here. I've said over and over again that the growth-oriented companies need to change their stripes. They need to change their approach in this environment. Rather than pursuing growth at all costs, which had been their way, they have to focus on profitable growth only because this market prizes earnings above all else. Sure seems like that's what Wayfair's now doing. While they announced some layoffs in August of last year, letting go of 870 people, and that was 5% of the workforce, with this new move, they're firing 1,750 people, which is 10% of Wayfair's global workforce and included 18% of their corporate team. That translates into, these are staggering numbers, $750 million in annualized cost savings. On top of the layoffs, they're also targeting $500 million in operational cost savings, and these should be fully realized by the end of the year. Then there's another $150 million in savings related to various other expenses. Put it all together, Wafer's talking about approximately $1.4 billion in cost savings per year. 
That is pretty huge, especially when you consider the company likely lost about $1.3 billion last year. These cost cuts are the difference between turning a profit and losing money. Now, according to Wayfair's co-chairman and CEO, Niraj Shah, in hindsight, some of our technology peers, we scaled our spend too quickly over the last few years, end quote. In other words, they, were in, they invested too aggressively during the worst days of the pandemic and then had to cut back once the world went back to normal like so many other digital outfits. No sin. On top of that, Wayfair threw in nice, a nice sweetener with a terrific business update. Maybe this was the most important thing of all. Listen to this. Quote, business momentum continues to strengthen. In December, year-over-year gross revenues trends experience a further improvement compared to the month of November. Wow, sequential game. Then get on, get this. He went on to say, we are encouraged by our recent top line performance and in particular the momentum in orders. Our market share continues to improve as our core offering strengthens across key dimensions such as availability, speed and price. End quote. Those had all been an issue. No wonder the stock jumped 20 percent on Friday. They're giving us one point four billion dollars in cost cuts. And they said revenue growth is picking up. Then today, Wayfair somehow rallied even harder because the stock caught three separate upgrades this morning. All delayed reactions to Friday's announcements. That includes two separate what's called known as double upgrades, where the analysts took Wayfair from the equivalent of a sell rating to a buy rating. That's like a swivel. I can't blame the analysts for jumping on the bandwagon. Faster sales growth plus lower costs equals much higher. Earnings. Honestly, this is a pretty straightforward story when you think about it. After the boom in 2020, when people invested in their homes and Wayfair's business exploded with sales growing 55% that year, there's been a prolonged hangover. The companies had negative revenue growth for six straight quarters. To make matters worse, they were also losing a ton of money as they scaled up in order to meet 2020 levels of demand that are now non-existent. It's a good thing Wayfair's finally realized that was a mistake, but is it enough? Is it enough to make the stock worth recommending? Look, I've been willing to get behind a number of digital plays that have made this same sort of pivot to profitability. Think Etsy, which I really think is great, Shopify, Pinterest, Mercado Libre, and Chewy, the comeback kids, I call them. Given that Wayfair's still down substantially versus where it was trading before the pandemic, maybe it's not too late to do some buying. This was a $90 stock before COVID hit. It's now at $59. That said, I bought it telling you to pay up for anything that's soared more than 50% in just two days. I acknowledge that Wayfair is now a much better story. When the facts change, I change my mind, and the facts have changed. While it was a very right thing to go negative on Wayfair in late 2021, the stock's been eviscerated since then. Plus, the whole reason I told you to sell was that the company wasn't profitable and seemed to have no path to profitability. That is clearly no longer the case. Wayfair's gotten religion on profitability. Those cost cuts are massive. That said, if you like this one, I actually think you'll get a better buying opportunity. When you see this kind of monster move in a short period of time, there's a good chance much of it's driven by short covering. People betting against Wayfair have to buy back the stock in order to close out the positions, which sends shares artificially higher. Plus, even if you're generous with the estimates, Wayfair's still far from cheap. Just looking at the two analysts who, up, who double upgraded it in the stock today, on average, they expect the company to earn 67 cents per share next year. That's incredibly bullish relative to the rest of Wall Street. But even using that number, the stock now sells for a ridiculously high 88 times next year's earnings estimates. If you want to bet on a comeback in the home goods space, I've got two better ones. I like Williams-Sonoma, which is just, uh, 19 to- nine times uh, this year's earnings estimates. 19, that's what it was. Nine times. Get this, RH, very fast growing. The chain forming on its restoration hardware, it trades 
raised only 18 times this year's numbers. Of course, Wayfair is now getting a lot of credit because its numbers are moving in the right direction. There's a big short position, but I think you have to wait for a better opportunity now. Here's the bottom line. Credit to Wayfair for finally admitting that its previous growth at all cost strategy was wrong and taking drastic action. That was a good thing. I think it has some upside, but it does seem a little late to jump in right now. However, if you get any meaningful pullback, you do indeed have my blessing to buy it, at least for speculation. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, what's the crisis of confidence in crypto mean for gold? Kramer studies a flight to safety next. You ask, I deliver. Now that Bitcoin spent the last couple of weeks bouncing off its lows, the whole crypto industrial complex is back in full gear, trying to entice people back in. I think that would be a huge mistake for you, which is why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's a brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, uh, and, by the way, our resident commodities expert. In order to explain what's wrong with crypto from at least a more quantitative perspective, not an emotional one, now, everybody knows that Bitcoin and itself have had a legion of cheerleaders, even after the FTX debacle and the wave of crypto exchanges either going under or getting charged by the SEC. Or both. They haven't stopped. For years, these people told us that Bitcoin was the perfect replacement for gold as an alternative asset. They said it was a great hedge against inflation in a world where central banks were printing money like crazy. But in reality, it wasn't a hedge against anything. I want you to take a look at this chart. This is a daily chart of the Bitcoin futures and the NASDAQ 100 futures going back to 2021. What do they have with each other? Garner points out that Bitcoin's practically joined at the hip with this tech-heavy index. I was shocked when I saw this. That's what it is. You know what it means? It means it's a risk asset, not a currency, not a stable storehold of value. Imagine business owners trying to conduct transactions with shares of Facebook or Google. Hey, he sold to you. It's ridiculous. They're too volatile. Bitcoin's no different. The question is, why does crypto practically trade in lockstep with the Nasdaq 100? Garner thinks it might have something to do with this. It's a little complicated. Counterparty risk. The probability that the other party in an investment or a transaction might not hold up their end of the deal. For example, if a crypto brokerage fails, like so many have, the clients might not get their money back. That's counterparty risk. As Garner sees it, whenever the economy is in trouble, investors flee from anything with counterparty risk. Few professional money managers want a piece of this stuff because it's like a ticking time bomb. Of course, you can just own Bitcoin directly in a decentralized wallet. That protects you from counterparty risk. But if you ever want to use it for anything, the risk is back on the table. And as FTX's customers learn, it can be devastating. On the other hand, gold, well, it's the opposite. Very different. Remember for the better part of a decade, all of these cryptoids told us that gold was a thing of the past. The future belonged to digital gold. But man, Garner points out that gold doesn't have counterparty risk. The markets the gold futures trade on are actually regulated. Best of all, the precious metal has been performing very well since last October. That's your hedge against inflation or economic chaos. I love that. Look, it's not just that Bitcoin trades more like a tech stock from anything else. It's also the furthest thing imaginable from any kind of currency. Now I want you to check out this daily chart of the dollar index, Bitcoin, and let's throw in gold. Garner says it's very clear that Bitcoin is not trading as if it were a currency. Telltale sign that markets simply don't believe this nonsense. On the other hand, even even though gold hasn't been useful as an actual currency for over a century, it's still negatively correlated to the U.S. dollar. 
As Garner sees it, gold is a good way to bet against the dollar, at least a lot of dollars being printed. Bitcoin, not so much. Look at this chart for much of 2021, okay? What you see is the dollar index was trading in the 90s and interest rates were more or less non-existent. That allowed gold and Bitcoin to fluctuate on non-currency related fundamentals. But then Russia invaded Ukraine in early 2022. The dollar soared and inflationary threats forced the Federal Reserve to aggressively raise interest rates. That further fueled the rally in the greenback. In response, both gold and Bitcoin got hit. Really interesting, isn't this? Meanwhile, the dollar's been in freefall since late September. That's why one of the reasons I recommend so many of the stocks that are dollar weak beneficiaries. Gold has rebounded like crazy over the same period. It's exactly what you want. Until the last couple of weeks, uh, Bitcoin totally failed to play catch up. Now Bitcoin's making this crazy move. Well, how good is it? Well, it's, it's getting some lift. And Garner wants you to make sure you understand that this rebound will not be like previous rebounds. I want you to take a look at Bitcoin's weekly chart. At the end of the day, you've got to remember that cryptocurrencies don't trade on any kind of fundamentals. They're not backed by anything. The crypto enthusiasts will say that the same things about the United States dollar. Oh, I've heard that so many times. But that's actually nuts. Our currency happens to be backed by the most powerful nation in the world, which has the ability to raise revenue by levying taxes. It's a big difference. So if we want to get a read on where something like Bitcoin might be headed, we need to turn to the technicals, which is why we're consulting with Garner. As she sees it, the odds favor lower highs and lower lows. We know Bitcoin had huge moves in 2020 and 2021. But that was when the Federal Reserve had cut interest rates to practically nothing because of COVID and Congress was blasting us with handouts in order to prop up a COVID-riddled economy. Those conditions were fabulous for speculative assets like crypto. But now the Fed's tightening aggressively and Congress is in a standoff over the debt ceiling. The last day of those result, uh, the last one of those resulted in major budget cuts could happen again. You know what that's good for? Well, I know this. It's real bad for speculative assets. Now, Garner points out that Bitcoin gapped higher in December 2020, okay, uh, from about 25,000, 26,000. Then it gapped lower last June from 28,000 down to 27,000. Look at those two moves, okay? Looking at them, Garner thinks the line between a Bitcoin bull market and a Bitcoin bear market lies somewhere in the mid to high 20,000s, okay? Specifically, she sees a ceiling of resistance at 23,000 with another ceiling, and this is the one I think is going to come into play, at 28,000. She highly doubts Bitcoin can break out above 30,000. Although, look, I have to say, you know, sometimes with tech, with, when you're dealing with charters, you have to accept this. If something, somehow it gets above, above 30,000, she will reconsider her negative stance. Looking at the chart, though, Garner believes the path of least resistance for Bitcoin is lower. Where to? She wouldn't be surprised if it falls all the way to 7,000 or 8,000. I'm going to repeat that because there's so many bulls. Again, 7,000 or 8,000. And sooner than most investors seem to expect. In the meantime, Bitcoin's got two potential floors of support. There's 15,000 and 13,000. Given that it's currency, it's currently at nearly 23,000, that wouldn't rep- that would represent a a lot more downside than most of us can handle. By contrast, Garner loves what you see in the weekly chart of the gold futures. While the gold market's got a reputation for volatility and irrationality, it looks downright calm compared to Bitcoin. Of course, the precious metals still came under pressure last year as money managers used it as a source of funds. That volatility pushed gold below its uptrend line, going back to the summer of 2018, which was 
unfortunate because it fooled a lot of people. But after two months, it rebounded above that level again. It's also above its 200-day moving average. I like that. See, this is a very important position right here because it's so far above the 200-day. As Garner sees it, gold's previous uptrend is once again in play. She expects it to hold as gold prepares for a run to much higher prices. That said, when you look at the relative strength index, which is down here, and in, that's an important momentum index, it's running a little hot. So Garner wouldn't be surprised to see a modest pullback here. However, as long as gold holds above its floor of support at 1800 she eventually could see it run to 2100 and then ultimately to 2600 Let me give you the bottom line here on this. The charts, as interpreted by Carly Garner, suggest you need to ignore the crypto cheerleaders now that Bitcoin's bouncing. And if you seriously want a real hedge against inflation or economic chaos, she says you should stick with gold. And I agree. Let's take phone calls. Let's start with Nico in Illinois. Nico. Jimmy Chill, a big booyah from Chicago. Good to have you, Nico. What's happening? I appreciate it. I want to send out a quick shout out to you, Jeff Marks, and the CNBC Investing Club. Uh, quick story. I started out with you guys during around the time of the start of the pandemic. I am now a graduate of college, paying off my student loans, and the big part of it is thanks to you guys. So thank you, Jim. Nico, I appreciate it. thank you. All weekend, I was at a fabulous wedding for my best friend's son. And people ask me, Jim, why are you still doing this? I should have said because of Nico. I was just saying, uh, there's all the great people who talk, who talk so nicely like that. How can I help you? What's your question? Well, I want to know a little bit about Upstart. Um, these buy now, pay later companies, they've had a lot of growth with their IPOs until recently. Uh, two questions. Do you think these stocks are going to continue to grow? And is the best of the pack Upstart? Okay, I, this is a tough question because these have been absolutely the worst stocks to own. I think Upstart can bounce because we're having a uh, a bounce in a lot of stocks that have a serious short position. But I think if, as the Fed keeps tightening, every time they tighten, that stock's going to get hit again. we got to up our quality. we got to make sure that we're in some of the industrials we've been buying for the club, which I think are a lot safer. Okay, tonight's charter says ignore the crypto cheerleaders now that Bitcoin's bouncing. And if you seriously want a real hedge against inflation, she says stick with gold. I agree. Much more Mad Bunny had last. We've got an update from Eli Lilly. There's another one for Nico to do, a little contrary. That's investors' concern, but I like that. Could be more to the story. I'm breaking down the headlines and sharing if this really something worth worrying about or not. Then I've said it before, but this is one of the craziest downturns I've ever seen in my career. But what sets this one apart from the others? I'm going to give you my take and all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Last Thursday night, Kramer fave Eli Lilly hit us with a doozy. They said the FDA shot down the request to fast-track Dunanomat, and that is the drug they've been working on for Alzheimer's. In response, the stock tumbled $5 on Friday before shedding another 4 bucks or so today, despite the strength in the broader market. But i got to tell you, I know this sounds strange, but I'm not that worried. And I say that even though we own Eli Lilly for the charitable trust. In fact, I'm going to tell you that this is a buying opportunity against the grain, obviously, but in a stock that hasn't given you many, many buying opportunities of late. Remember, Lilly was up 32% last year, the S&P 500 was down nearly 20%. What makes me so confident? First, let me give you a little context. Alzheimer's has always been Big Pharma's white whale. It's a terrible disease that's incredibly widespread, which means there's a lot of money in tr- if you could treat it. But nobody ever seems to pull it off, at least until recently. 
Back in 2021, the FDA approved Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. The first new treatment since 2003, well, that was highly controversial because the efficacy date on this one, let's just say, let's call it iffy. Didn't help that Biogen priced it at $56,000 a year. The whole thing was so shocking, it even triggered a congressional investigation. Sure enough, Biogen's Alzheimer's drug fizzled. They had to cut the price aggressively. And then the regulator in charge of Medicare and Medicaid issued a very narrow coverage ruling. They'll only pay for it for patients who are in clinical trials. Well, that's a tiny number of people. But even though Biogen's Alzheimer's drug was indeed a disappointment, the whole saga made it clear that the FDA is willing to approve less than ideal treatments for this horrible disease. Since then, Wall Street's had its eye on two drugs. Biogen's got a new Alzheimer's formulation in the works in collaboration with Isai, the Japanese drug company, much better efficacy data than their previous drug. More importantly, Earlier this month, the FDA granted accelerated approval designation to Biogen's new Alzheimer's drug. While they're still going through the traditional approval process, they can actually start selling this thing right now. Which brings me back to Eli Lilly. See, they've got the other exciting Alzheimer's drug in the works with some compelling phase two clinical trial data. They asked the FDA for the same accelerated approval that Biogen just got. And then we found out that they'd been shot down last Thursday. Now, you might think that means Biogen's Alzheimer's drug is candidate it, 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 drug is candidate for something better. Now, I mean, that the FDA gave it their seal of approval while denying the same thing to Lilly. I know that's what a lot of people thought, but I say not so fast. Sure, it would have been better, obviously, if Lilly got fast track. But if you do the homework, there's, there really aren't any issues. The FDA's decision was more or less based on a technicality. Basically, Lilly didn't have enough patients who'd spent at least 12 months on the drug during the phase two clinical trial, which is what their accelerated approval of application was based on. And that was, that, that was the only problem. I mean, nothing else. Uh, let me quote this, uh, this note. According to Lilly, and I, this is very important language, no other deficiencies in the application were noted. That's end quote. Specifically, the FDA won't give them accelerated approval until they've seen data from 100 patients who've been on the drug for at least a year. While 131 patients in Lilly's phase two trial were given the real drug rather than the placebo, they were allowed to stop taking it six months into the study if they'd reduced enough plaque in their brains. That's how these Alzheimer's treatments work. Unfortunately, a few dozen patients dropped out, so only 94 people received the full 12 months, meaning Lily was six patients short of the FDA's threshold. Again, it would have been great to get accelerated approval, but consider the cause of the problem. Not enough people took their Alzheimer's drug for 12 months, precisely because it achieved the goal too quickly. They didn't need the full 12 months. Lilly's now got this drug in a much larger phase three trial with data from that coming sometime in the second quarter. That's the big kahuna. And their plan is to file for traditional FDA approval not long after. In other words, sure, they didn't get early approval, but we're really just talking about a couple of months delay. Does that delay hurt Lilly financially? Not by much. In its announcement last week, the company said pointedly that, quote, this action does not result in a change to Lilly's 2023 financial guidance, end quote. Most analysts had minimal expectations expectation for revenue from Donatamab, this at least in 2023. Before the announcement last week, they were only looking for $200 million in sales in 2023, which is not even a drop in a bucket for a company the size of Eli Lilly. They're expected to generate more than $30 billion in sales this year. But more importantly, while it's encouraging that their Alzheimer's drug was merely delayed, not condemned, the truth is that Alzheimer's drug is almost a sideshow. I know people are focused on it, but they're focused on the wrong job. I mean, I know this is amazing, but Eli does have a fabulous wonder drug in the pipeline. It just isn't Denanomab. The one we're salivating over is called Munjaro. It's the type 2 diabetes treatment that's also being studied as a weight loss drug, 
where it's currently in phase three trials. The weight loss data here looks very promising. So if this thing gets approved for obesity, Lily's going to make a fortune. This could potentially be one of the most lucrative, if not the most lucrative drugs of all time. We've got a massive obesity epidemic in this country around the world, too. So an effective weight loss treatment with few side effects, I mean almost none, would be a game changer. Louis looking for FDA approval on the obesity indication sometime in the second half of the year. It could happen sooner. And that's the big opportunity here. That's why there's been so much voracious buying in the stock. The Alzheimer's drug is merely the icing on the cake. Manjaro is the cake itself. Although if you're taking Manjaro, you probably aren't that interested in eating the cake. <laughs> All right. Now, even before the FDA shot down their accelerated approval request, Lilly's stock was taking a beating this year. It's now down more than 6% for 2023. But that's more about a sector rotation out of the drug stocks into other stocks than anything else. Wall Street's become convinced that the Federal Reserve can engineer a soft landing, meaning they can beat inflation without ruining the economy. And if that's possible on the table, if that's real, Money managers don't want as much exposure to recession-proof industries like Big Pharma, of which the least certainly a part of. But the Fed's still tightening. The economy's still deteriorating. Nothing much has changed with Lilly other than getting closer and closer to those states that we want so much, including Manjaro. Bottom line, I think you've got to treat this pullback from Lilly as a buying opportunity. Hey, you know, by the way, if I'm right, this may very well be the last good chance to get into the stock before a big move because the future of their pipeline is looking bright, and I think that's enough to trump the violent sector rotation out of pharma that we're seeing at this very moment. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time to light round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, daddy, time for the light round. I'm going to start with Josh in Colorado. Josh. Hey, Jim. First time caller. Happy Monday to you. Same to you, my friend. Hey, listen, I know you don't like facts, Jim, but hang with me. This company has got a little bit of a different pedigree. They've been around and operating for over 10 years. They've got a new proven fintech CEO, Bruce, Bruce Flowers. Um, they've got solid institutional ownership, BlackRock, CBC. You even have Bill Foley on your show to talk about it. Jim, I need to know, is it safe to dip my toes back into PSFE, PaySite? Okay, it is a good company. It's an out-of-favor sector. I think that that could be the next sector to have a little bit more of a run. I bless that for a trade to 25, and I thank you for the kind words. John in California. John! Yes, booyah, Jim. Booyah, John. How are you doing? Jimmy Chell says good. How about you? Uh, doing great. Just calling in regards to Canadian mining company Tech Resources. Had it for about. I want You know what? I've been looking at tech. I did the charts this weekend, and I like Tech Resources more than I like Freeport. I am going to bless it. Why? Bye, bye, bye. Because it sells at five times earnings. That's a little ridiculous. I want to go to Eric in Texas. Eric. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, I my bought pleasure. R1 RCM in November around eight dollars. The new CEO okay. looks like he's got a good background, West Point guy. You know what? I, I got to tell you, I, when I saw Oracle buy Cerner, I thought of these guys. I like your choice. I think that medical records is uh, still needs to be more, uh, let's say, consolidated. I'll go with you guys. I'll go with R1. Let's go to Nancy in Illinois. Nancy. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my Nancy. call. 
Of course. And thank you for all your insight during the years. Um, I'm representing the Tower Investment Club in Western Springs outside of Chicago. And we have two questions about a stock that we own, Iridium. So our first concern is why is the P.E. for Iridium so extremely high? I know it's over 2,000 today. I know in the past they've had many years without any P.E., but recently it's just climbing and climbing. Right. Well, look, you know, satellites are in strong demand. To get them up there is rather amazing. We know that. The market capitalization has expanded a great deal, but so uh, the revenues have it. So I'm not as inclined to buy the stock up here. I would rather take you to Binnie's and buy a couple of bottles of uh, Phosphoro. Yeah, I know it's a big Chicago liquor store. Here's the big issue with me, though. I understand there are many people who love satellites so much they'll buy anything connected to satellites, including Iridium, and that's why it's up. Thank you for the kind words, and that led to the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, stay loose, Kramerica. Don't let this wild and crazy tightening cycle make you tense. Stick with Kramer. Jim Kramer is the diehard of the dollar. Hey, Jimmy, love the show. My five-year-old grandson loves to watch your show. I have to thank you for making us money when it's there to be made. Our world is a better place with you in it. From the very beginning, I've told you this is one of the craziest slowdowns I've ever seen. It's just weird. In previous Fed tightening cycles, you get huge defaults among those who bought cars with borrowed money. We'd have mortgage defaults all over the place. There'd be a major cessation of hiring. Some of these Fed-mandated recessions have been incredibly brutal. I've seen entire industries decimated by rate hikes, aluminum, steel, mining. The layoffs were so quick and so enormous that some of these companies never really bounced back. Some closed. Another tightening cycle brought down the savings and loan industry, a genuine crisis. Still another crushed the marginal retailers, another the autos. And, of course, there was a tightening cycle leading up to the Great Recession. Aside from the dot-com crash in 2000, though, no tightening cycle has truly hurt Silicon Valley. It had been more or less immune. So many companies need to go digital or embrace the cloud in order to save themselves. Many CEOs simply didn't understand tech, so they turned to the big consultants, a Deloitte or Accenture, EY, or they went directly to some vendors because their products were so dramatic in the way they boosted your business. When it comes to bringing in new customers, no company was more powerful than Salesforce. I know from personal experience because we brought them in at a company I founded. Phenomenal. We saw the same necessity as companies shifted their advertising budgets to Google and Facebook. We saw Amazon require an army of hundreds of thousands of people to meet demand, along with a gigantic investment in data centers for its cloud business. Apple, I thought it was lean. Now I'm not even sure. The instrumental Microsoft became embedded everywhere. I do know this. The epicenter of layoffs isn't this time in Pittsburgh for steel or New York for retail or the Motor City for autos. No, this time it is in Silicon Valley ex-Microsoft, but it's just getting started. We've had a 10% reduction in workforce at Salesforce. That's nearly 8,000 people. Amazon cut 18,000. I think you'll have to do many, many more. Microsoft let go 5% of its workforce of 10,000 people. Meta terminated 13% or 11,000 out, but let go of 12,000. I know those layoffs are brutal, but when you think about how many people were hired during the pandemic, these firings simply aren't enough, with the possible exception of Meta. That's why Meta's been able to rally a lot harder than the others. Alphabet only let go of the same number of people they 
hired last year. Is that really enough? Salesforce started the pandemic with 49,000 people and now employs 80,000 people. 10% may not be enough. There's just too many. It shows that perhaps there hasn't been enough integration maybe at, at uh, Salesforce between Slack or Tableau, two gigantic acquisitions. No wonder four activist investors are eager to change the company and make it leaner. The earnings would be huge given the quality of the product. Now, Silicon Valley has always been known as a growth area, but now it's facing the grim reaper of mass layoffs precisely because it's no longer a growth area. Instead, we're dealing with a series of mature, competitive, set-in-their-ways organizations. They're also incubators of their own disruption because so many of these companies invest in the next generation of tech startups. I always talk about how there are too many companies that analyze data, analyze the analyzers, analyze stored data, stored data, retrieve data, secure data. There are too many companies going against each other. Nobody ever admits defeat. It's just not in their lexicon. But defeats occur monthly. So what's the real problem? As someone who has been fired, and has also done plenty of firing, I know the problem. It's horrible and painful to take someone's dinner off the table and cancel their health insurance. These tech CEOs, with the possible exception of Mark Zuckerberg, don't seem to know how to address the current downturn. And to be sure, Zuckerberg gave incredibly generous packages to those who were laid off. But the slowdown is happening, and it's happening right now. Most companies need to start taking action tomorrow. While I'm never really going to be happy about people losing their jobs, I bet the Federal Reserve is thrilled by these tech layoffs. Because if you can get Silicon Valley millionaires insecure about their money and you get more engineers looking for work, it's much easier to get inflation under control. It's very harsh, but it's very true. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow.